we were dealing, and I think we dealt with most of these things in our chart the other day regarding teaching someone who is of the Methodist faith, if you want to call it that. Um, there were a couple, one, at least one other that I thought of, and this would be one that would be... Uh, in connection with the idea of, of Bible knowledge, one thing you may have to deal with is having a knowledge, have a person not being distinguished between the Old and New Testaments. And they may go back to the Old Testament and pull out commands that were part of that law, definitely part, things that may sound very strange to us today, or to them today. And there were laws which, you know, they were forbidden of certain eating certain things, they were forbidden to even wear certain types of clothes, if my memory is correct. Uh, they were things that, that were particular to that law. Well, what will happen is that a person will go back and they'll read those things and they'll sound so outlandish and they won't make the proper distinction between the Old and New Testaments. So what that causes them to do is to interject this idea of, uh, in addition to Scripture, experience, faith, and reason uh, and use that to just throw out any part of the Bible that they disagree with. And I'll be honest with you, in doing a little bit of research, <clears throat> uh, looking at... In fact, I typed in scriptural authority. I did a Google search. And one of the first links, I want to say the third or fourth link that came up was a discussion of, I believe, someone who was in the Methodist Church and he was dealing with the, with the subject of homosexuality and he was arguing in favor of it based on their quadrilineal, quadrilateral approach to, to theology of faith. And that was based on scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And he was using those things. Well, you know, we've always, this is our, our heritage. This is the way we interpret. And he was basing it on that. And he was using that as a means to justify uh, that practice. So you can see where that leads. Um... What can we do? We need to be inviting people to a Bible study and, and, and getting the Word of God in front of them. The Bible does claim that it is quick and powerful. I'm afraid some of us, and I definitely include myself in this, I'm afraid we're just waiting on people to walk in the door and start asking questions. And, you know, occasionally that does happen. But we're to be out teaching. We need to emphasize the entire Bible approach. It's one continuous story, but then it had, there is a division between the two covenants. We need to show examples of conversion. What did people do? When did they do it? I think uh, Melissa and I were talking after class the other day, right? after services the other day. They did it the same hour of the night. They were baptized then. The Bible uh, emphasizes that. We need to show how the church, local churches were organized, what their practices were. Why, it's, why is it important that we follow that pattern? Uh, and we need to go into the subject of authority. And that's the one that we, that, that's really at the crux of the matter. People have to understand that God does expect us to follow His patterns. We need to show what really constitutes faith. Uh, we need to be examining our own positions. You know, hopefully we never hit a point that we just think we've got it all figured out. And, well, this is something I've always believed, and therefore I'm not going to re-examine it. We need to be re-examining ourselves. And I don't mean going and, and doubting everything and doubting everything that we know that is valid from the Bible, but we need to be people who study the Bible and, and re-examine ourselves in terms of what the Bible teaches. Make sure we're not practicing things we shouldn't. 
Make sure we're not binding things that we shouldn't. Uh, and as I've already mentioned, we're commanded to go out into the world and teach. We will be judged according to that. And we're not. And one thing I think I fell into this category sometimes. We're not trying to win an argument with someone. We're not trying to just make people believe like us. You know, for simply for that sake. We're not trying to win people over just to, to our way of thinking. For that sake, we're trying to convert people to Christ. We're trying to make disciples of Christ. And we need to be wise in how we approach people. We need to have our speech seasoned with salt. And, and we, need to be try, we, we need to try to approach people and deal with them in a kind manner, in an understanding manner. You know, we're not trying to win an argument in, that, in a sense. I mean, there is an argument in a sense for truth. We are arguing for truth, and I wouldn't speak that at all. Um, Brother Legaber gave me a couple of books that he had. That uh, one of which was the Methodist Episcopal Church South. This is the discipline from 1930. And I pulled out one particular subject, and there's probably a lot of things we could have. I just didn't have time to read it a lot. But it was interesting. You notice in 1930, look at what we circled here. <clears throat> Their ministers were prohibited from performing marriage ceremonies between divorced persons except... In the case of innocent parties who have been divorced for the one scriptural cause. In 1930, the Methodist Episcopal Church South recognized what the Bible taught with respect to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, I think we talked the other day that has totally been cast out now. Again, reason, experience, tradition has been changed. This might be something in the course of a study that you might be wanting to bring out. You know, as you develop that study and a person begins to question, and we need to show that this is uh, this this is the evidence of, of a church that is doing things according to the, the ideas of men. And I thought that was interesting. And again, I, I, there's probably other things. There was another one I noticed that I forgot to go back and highlight, but I thought that would be interesting to you. But they did recognize it at one time. Of course, that's no, no such the case now. Uh, another book that he had. And this is something that makes an interesting argument. And I don't know how much, you probably can't see that that well. The argument is nowhere in the New Testament is there a definite and authoritative statement of just what the church is to do and what it is not to do. Christ left it to work out its own program. It may be free to do at any time what manifestly needs to be done. Use methods which promise to be effective. To adjust itself to the spirit of different ages and different people. Now, he sort of mixes... Universal church and local church together. I don't think he had a good understanding of that. But this is an idea of, this is one person's approach in 1918, and this book deals with the Methodist church and its work, and it was laying out, it's sort of a, it was sort of an instruction manual for people in that church. And I think uh, that was already highlighted in your, in your book. Maybe you highlighted it, or somebody highlighted it as an interesting, and I noticed it too. Maybe that's why I noticed it, because it was highlighted. That's the idea a lot of people have concerning Christians and how they act and function collectively. You know, they're to work it out themselves. Christ didn't really give us any guidance there. And that's an argument you're going to have to deal with. And that's an argument we need to think about and consider. Does the Bible show us a pattern? Does it give us a pattern? Do we just accept that because we've always accepted it? Or do we really know that and believe that and speak and show that in the Scripture? I think we can. Um, what are your thoughts? That's most of the charts. At this point, I was going to go over some of the questions that we had, that I'd given you. Hopefully, you had a chance to look at that.
Anyway, I, I, I thought you might find some of those things interesting. Again, this illustrates an idea that's out there and it's still out there and permeates a religious thought today. You know, God didn't really tell us how to do this. Well, I think we could would dispute that. All right, let's look at. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and shut this off at this point. We're just gonna deal with. Uh, I'm gonna ask for your comments regarding the questions that we have, and I will say this: some of the questions were probably not very well worded, and there were probably two that could have been answered with the same, given the same answer. So. The idea of conversion in terms of Methodist doctrine really goes back to the idea of justification. How is a person justified? According to Methodist doctrine, how is a person justified? Faith only. only. Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? Okay, James, the second chapter, makes that clear. It is not by faith only. I think what really happens... And I believe this is true of many people in the religious world. In an effort to steer clear of meritorious salvation, that is, we earn salvation, in an effort to to stay away from that, which is definitely a false doctrine, they swerve too far the other way, and they get the idea that if there's an act of obedience like baptism, that they they have a hard time placing that uh, in terms of salvation by grace, salvation by faith. Well, being baptized is salvation by faith. Working faith, active faith, living faith. What did you have here? What did, did somebody want to make a comment about what they had, what they said? Without faith, baptism would be useless. Without, uh, uh, you just, you know, faith is the basic of the, of the whole thing. That's the first thing you... You've got to, the second thing, really, you've got to hear the word and believe it. When you believe it, then you develop your faith. You know, um, well, I had a thought, and I totally lost it. We see plenty of examples of people being saved and what they did, uh, and baptism was definitely a part of that. You know, one interesting thing that was pointed out to me a number of years ago that I'd never really thought about, but I've looked back at it and I believe it's true. And there are some exceptions. But in many cases, when the Bible discusses baptism, it is a reminder to Christians, you changed at that point. That's the point in which you changed. A lot of times in my way of thinking, I thought, well, it's, is that really right? But if you look at the different examples, these letters to Christians that we talked about and that we emphasize in our Bible approach and studying, that's the point. He's talking to Christians. You made a change right there. And that's a powerful argument. And, um, of course, we do have some examples where people were commanded. We have such as the eunuch. Uh, when he obeyed in Acts 2, we had commands. But a lot of times, it just and, and Paul re- recounting his conversion uh, of what happened there in Acts 22. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting point. When you, when you talk about he that believeth and is baptized... Acts two thirty eight, Mark sixteen sixteen. When you consider, when they talk about what somebody being saved, they mention both. That's right. All right. Romans chapter six talks about the change that has to take place. You know the difference: the old, the old man, the new man. Uh, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, being then made free from sin, became the servant. You became the servant of righteousness. So, and when we see examples of conversion in the Bible, we see a very big difference. 
between those and when they obeyed the gospel and what they did versus what we see in Methodist doctrine versus what we see in a lot of denominational doctrines. All right, what about some passages that prove the need for Bible authority? You know, how would you, how would you answer that argument we showed a minute ago? You know, did God just leave it up to us to decide however we would do in terms of our religion? Maybe there are some things He did. He didn't tell us what time to meet on Sunday. But in terms of our practices, did He give us... I mean, do you have a way of basing and showing and taking the Bible and say, okay, here's why you need to have authority. Matthew 7 points it out. In, in verse there, verse 21, I've got written through verse 23, but uh, verse 21, he that doeth will not, and one who says, Lord, Lord, to me. Okay. It's not just nearly a matter of having a good attitude, but that illustrates in that passage is that. Uh, there were going to be those in the judgment who actually had a thought that believed that they were doing what God said and in reality that He never knew them. If I'm quoting that passage right. Paul, in his teachings, emphasizes all the time that that the Bible is complete. He says you have everything you need is included in the Bible. All things that pertain to life and godliness. I think he's talking about uh, 2 Timothy 3.15 from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise in the sight of God. Okay. Colossians 3.17 in the form of command whatever you do in word or do do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father for Him. Okay, I had that one too but I, for some reason I wrote 3.15. <laughs> John uh, verse 9 also is a good passage thinking about that whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God to Okay. And, and what is the doctrine? Uh, Paul clearly said if it's if it wasn't given by, by him or the other apostles, it's not doctrine. What about some examples? Can you think of some examples of people when either what they they did do what God said and God recognizes that, or they didn't do what God said and they suffered the consequences? There are some examples that we can point out. Okay. Okay, very good. You know, they those will be negative examples where they didn't follow God's commands and they suffered the penalty. Of course, in, in David's uh, situation, Uzzah suffered the penalty, but they all did in a sense. And uh, God, and he, you know, and you can really make a strong argument. I think there because the commands concerning moving the ark were given way back, long, many years before. Uh, to the Israelites, and here they were in what seems like a different situation, different things have happened, and the ark's been away from us, and now it's come back, the Philistines have sent it back, let's bring it to us, let's have a good celebration, and let's enjoy uh, the fact that God is back with us in the sense of the ark, and what happened? They didn't follow God's prescribed command. To me, that's a very powerful argument for having authority in what we do, do things according to the way God showed us. First, you can't find where God said, do not put, a, put it on the pole. You know, a lot of people say, well, where did the Bible say, don't do so-and-so? Well, ask us about it. That's right. You, you know, what happened to it? The story of Naaman and his leprosy is a good example of uh, someone thinking that they should have been done another way than God. Yeah, aren't, my, aren't the rivers far, what are they? Far, far, and, some, and uh, aren't they just as good as the rivers of Damascus? Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. 
Yet, what did he wind up doing? He wound up doing it, and was he was he cured of his leprosy at the sixth dip? No, only to the seventh. And he had to do it exactly the way he was told. Like they marching around uh, um, Jericho, they uh, until they completed their obedience, the walls didn't fall down. They were told that God was giving you the, the city, but they still had to do His will. They had to follow His command. Exactly to the to the letter. I, I think there's a New Testament example dealing with uh, the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. There had to be a change made there as a result of that. To me, that's a powerful argument, and that's in the New Testament. We can't just you know some people want to go back. Well, that was years ago, and God was different then. Well, this is a New Testament example, and there's an appeal made. There had to be a change made because. Nothing had been said concerning that a priesthood after the order. Well, I'm losing my train of thought, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Say again. Priesthood from the tribe of Judah. Exactly. Thank you. Exactly. Okay. Simon, Simon the sorcerer thought, you know, he could get the Holy Spirit to abide it, but there's only one way he could have gotten the Holy Spirit. Laying on the hot apostles' for hands, exactly. All right, let's go to number three. This is sort of a, just a collection of questions that I thought of. They're not really organized in terms of a, uh, a definite flow here, but hopefully you get an appreciation. Here's some things you're going to have to deal with as you teach. What about the role of women in religion? You know, what about the argument that Paul was only teaching? And I won't use the phrase that. Uh, that one person supposedly used about him. I won't do that tonight. But was he just simply teaching the uh, teaching in accordance with the culture of the times? What arguments did he make in in setting forth the uh, the role of headship? In First Timothy two thirteen and fourteen, he went back to creation. And so his argument wasn't based in the culture or the times or his opinion. It was based on the order that God established. Adam was first formed, then Eve. That was the argument that he makes. And it was not based on culture. go back and look at the qualifications of those that lead in the church. The elders and deacons, for example. And you don't see any woman mentioned. And neither do you hear of them being... Even teachers, except in private. And in Methodist doctrine today, uh, they do have elders and deacons, and they make it clear anyone can serve regardless, and they don't really make a big case for uh, the qualifications found in, in the Bible. By in example, in the church, you, just see no, you see nothing in the New Testament indicate that women took part uh, in any leadership role in, in the church. Now, does that mean women are subservient and they are not as good as men? No. That's have a different role. Well, one of the key notes in that, uh, that story there is that uh, it wasn't man that was deceived in the beginning and first sin, but rather it was right. a woman who was deceived and she led the man in. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Uh, you know, and he goes on and says, as the law also says. Exactly. So, we see that argument being made not based on culture, based in, in, on many of these passages uh, on creation and, and, and what happened in the course of the first, first 
first of events that we read of in the Bible, does it? Scott, I might touch the question wrong, but I... When mentioned or when your question is, uh, we're not simply products of the customs of society and time, as far as that time back then. Looked at it a little bit differently and uh, looked at Colossians chapter three verse nine, and there Paul teaches that you know do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Basically, if it was just a matter of culture and time for back then, wouldn't that stand to be the same for liars? Do you think lying back then, you were telling them not to do that, do you think that was just only for back that time and that, that society? Obviously not. That is something that's still true today. And just as that is true today, so was what he's taught on the other side. I hadn't thought about it that way, but to me that sounds like a good argument. If we can go and, and utilize, uh, you know, if we can just cast something out because we think that that was just the product of the time, then why, why limit it to just that teaching? We can do it with any teaching. And of course, there will be people who would make a case for lying is okay in some cases. Probably, scripture reveals. Start with it. Reveal for all men throughout time. I'll tell you something. This really does, and this really illustrates. And people, all of us, have to have an appreciation for, and have something we need to teach. When we begin to allow tradition, reason, and experience to be our uh, to, to to have equal footing, or maybe even more footing in reality than scripture we are really tearing away at the foundation of inspiration. We're saying that God really didn't inspire people to write, or if He did, God did not have the foresight to know that customs and times were going to change. You know, that, it's really undermining Scripture from, it, from a standpoint of it being God-breathed. God intended it to be throughout. And, and, and that's, something that, uh, that's something we have to do and prove to people that God's Scripture really is inspired and it really is intended for all ages. I think first Peter one, twenty four, twenty five, uh, all the flesh is grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away. The word of the Lord endures forever. Um, you know, the, the concept that God's word you know, over time has been beat upon, but God's word is, is eternal and exactly. is, uh, forever. It's timeless. That's the reason he had his twelve apostles as witnesses. Not only were they witnesses, but they, the word will be revealed to them in, in, in God's Okay, and that'll, get, that'll fit in in just a minute with one of our other questions. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. The faith has been established, but in latter times people will depart from it. Exactly. Uh, it will not be that the faith has changed. It will be people in latter times will respect it more. And, and that's a good segue into our next question, actually. Is God pleased with the religious division that exists in our world? Is God standing behind all these differences? We talked about that a little bit the other day. How would you go and show that's not a good thing? Some people look at that as, oh, wow, look at all these different choices we have. We can worship God any way that we choose. And this is great. And from a, from a freedom standpoint, from being able to exercise our own individual freedoms, that might be good. But in terms of what God intends for us to do, is it good that we have that much division in religion? Romans 16, 17. And I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you which you learned and avoided. Very good verse there. You know. There are people who are going to teach things different. Well, what do we do with that? Do we just say, okay, I'm okay, you're okay? And that's really an approach 
that the Methodist church really embraces. You know, not, not only with its own church, but even with other groups. Uh, they have no problem with that. What else do you have? John's 17th chapter, the whole chapter is, is pretty much on this subject, but particularly verse 11. Christ, uh, his prayer to God was that uh, his followers would be one as he and God were one. You can't do that if, uh, if you follow what they're teaching. Exactly. The point to make on that also is that <clears throat> Jesus wasn't praying for something that couldn't happen. It could happen. And if it doesn't happen, then we see what we see today, which is the fact that this causes people to disbelieve. And that's the, that's the net effect of, yeah. the convict, of the confusion in the religious world. They see such a confused religious world they just reject it all why, why is any of it any good and when someone tries to tell you that they can't that uh, that we cannot agree well they're arguing against Jesus here he was praying for something that could happen what about the Corinthians when Paul wrote to the Corinthians the first thing he starts dealing with in chapter 1 is the division that they had amongst themselves they were placing emphasis apparently on on uh, following after different ones I'm a Paul I'm a Peter I'm a Christ and and Paul asked the question, is Christ divided? And obviously the answer is no. And they had to learn, you know, we have to be uh, unified in that sense. Paul, Paul <coughs> said, you know, he went to length to say that, that we are not divided, we're one. We're one in Christ, not one in Paul or one in, in Barnabas or one in whoever. We're <coughs> one in Christ and we have the same doctrine. How would you answer a person who makes a distinction between the things Jesus taught and things taught by the apostles? Like I said, I've dealt with that question before. I always say in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Okay, I've got that one down. <laughs> what does that say? It says uh, that the person that uh, thinks he is... Uh, I probably ought to read it. <laughs> so I get, get it accurately, but I think I know the... the general idea uh, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord and there's didn't we just talk about another subject uh, in that same chapter just prior to that dealing with the role of women mm-hmm. and you got people want to reject that and yet in that same chapter of course they didn't divide them into chapters then but in that same series of words in that same context almost Paul makes a point anybody thinks he's, a, he's spiritual or is a prophet let him acknowledge the things I'm writing are commandments of the Lord so he, he may he, it's interesting that it just happens to be right there if, if my memory is correct is that right I thought I had looked at that John chapter 14, verse 26, and also 15, 26, makes it clear when Jesus was uh, teaching his disciples that uh, he would leave them, but he would send a comforter. Uh, he says that he would guide them into all truth, and that that would, because they had been with him from the beginning, uh, that he, they would call to remembrance those things and, and also uh, further extend the truth that he was teaching. So their work was clearly by Jesus' own teaching and extension of what he taught, guided by the Holy Spirit in Aaron. Do you think uh, Jesus telling the apostles, I've given to you the keys of the kingdom, 
Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Do you think that fits here? Matthew, and then it's also in Luke too. Uh, some people want to center on one and think he's just talking to Peter, but if you look, I believe it's in Luke. It makes it clear he's talking. He did, he did that for all the apostles, not just Peter. And and I think if I understand the language right there, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven is really the way the the idea flows there. So they did; they were given authority to write things, and there were, of course, that would have dealt with the apostles, but. We do see that the Bible does make a claim for itself in terms of inspiration. That is, God breathed. God is the one who is guiding these scriptures. And the connection with what I believe it was Greg was talking about a while ago from John chapter 14 and 16 and Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, talking to the apostles, He said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. And, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Another one that I like is Matthew 10, 40, where Jesus says this. He says, He who receives you, speaks to his apostles, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. So when we accept the apostles, the word, we're not only accepting Jesus' word, but the words of the Father. And the other interesting thing about this is, if you want to dispute what the apostles say, and you don't have what Jesus says either, because he—they're the ones who wrote it down. Exactly. So you can't get to the you can't get to Jesus except for through the apostles. That's a good point. All good points. Okay. Well, how would we deal with the subject of you know what really constitutes baptism? How do we deal with that? How do you make the point that baptism is by immersion according to the scriptures? Okay. So what was the what's the point being made there? That's when uh, Philip teaches uh, the uh, you know he says they both went down into the water and he baptized him. And they obviously didn't go down into a little bowl, did they? <laughs> I had that one too. Uh, somebody else was going to make it. You know, they, the, the, well, That's okay. The, the uh, unit probably had some water with it, enough water to sprinkle with, don't you suppose? <laughs> driving his chariot down through the desert. I, I, I remember many years ago arguing, well, discussing with some men who were Lutherans. This was in Coleman, so a lot of Lutherans around there, a lot, a lot of Catholics too. But anyway, they, they, the guy was arguing that, uh, uh, I guess he'd learned this from his pastor or something. That not, a, not enough water around there to, to <coughs> dip anybody in. But, you know, uh, if he had had, uh, if it had just been a matter of sprinkling, he would have had water driving down to there. Someone of his yeah. position. Yeah. Uh, he, he would have had water along with him. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't dependent on finding it. Uh, anyway, he, uh, he would have had enough to just pour it in uh, Philip's hand and sprinkle it on his head. He said, see here is water. What does hinder me? They stopped. They went down into it. They came up out of it. Okay. Very good. Somebody else was going to make a point a minute ago too. Somebody right in there. Maybe it's already been right. Romans 6 Okay, it is a burial. What about the word itself? Yeah, it just means dip, plunge, immerse. If I, I have read, and I have no way of confirming this, but this is from a source I trust, that when the Bible was, when the English version started being made, that instead of translating it just saying immersion or immerse or dip, uh, there was a problem there because that wasn't being practiced, so they transliterated the word, made an English, a Greek word into an English word, and just called it out of baptizo. 
and made it baptism or baptize uh, because that rep, that posed a problem uh, because people didn't practice immersion or dipping. But that's just literally what the meant, word meant. When a Greek person heard that word, that meant to dip or plunge. In John chapter 3, you know, where it talks about... Uh, about John, John the Baptist, that he was baptized. He was not baptizing for the same purpose, but as far as the meaning of the word, mm-hmm. he said he was baptizing in Eden near the Salem because there was much water there. Yeah, I thought of that. It was too. a matter of just a, a few drops. Why much? Okay, good comments. What if you are part of a, a group of people that are, I say, you're part of a church? using church in a, the sense that they do. And they have all these official positions, but you say, well, I don't agree with that. Is that a problem? Do you think God will hold you accountable for this? How would you answer that kind of thing? Yeah, I tell you what, I attended the Church of Christ and when I was a teenager. And I was told whatever the elder decided to do, that was right. Concerning orphan homes. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. <laughs> it is. It's the same principle. One person will say, well, but, but what if you're a part of a group and you recognize clearly, okay, the church position on this is wrong, but I don't agree with that. I don't care what they say. But you're still going and you're still a part of that. Is that okay? I think part of the problem is if you look at passages like Second John verses 10 and 11 where it talks about whoever greets him being a false teacher in this case shares in his evil deeds. There's this idea of fellowship that whether it's through money or through any form of support, whenever we join in a work with someone, or a church in this case, if they're teaching or practicing something that's wrong, then we become partaker of it. We're associated with and, and we become partaker of that sin. Exactly. You going to make a point, Mr. Chairman? <laughs> That's a good. That's a very good comment. Exactly. We're following along, right along with it. We may say we don't agree with it, but we are a part of it. And of course, what Trevor said, we are endorsing it. We're embracing it. And to me, that's not a good argument. I believe there are people who who will make those arguments. Well, I don't believe that. Well, you're still a part of it. You're still uh, fellowshipping it. You're still contributing your. Financial support to it. You know, you're still a part of that system. All right. How would you how would you prove the error of the Methodist basis of faith? Scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Hopefully, nobody had any passages to dispute that we should use Scripture. But what about reason, experience, and tradition? I mean, maybe we could answer them all with the same passages. In fact, that's kind of the approach I took. What are some passages that you wrote? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Our Scripture and there's no other ground for it. Okay. You can't get faith in the Word. Matthew 15. Look at the way Jesus dealt with the Pharisees there. There's traditions and transgresses God's Word. And it's traditions to be tossed. Right. In vain do they worship me, teaching His doctrines, the commandments of men. Okay. I had that one too. He made the commandments of God of no effect by your traditions. Okay. What else? I got a couple more here. Actually, three more. Colossians 2 and verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. You know, these are things that are appealing to 
the traditions of men. Um, Proverbs 14, verse 12, and then there's another place too that says 16.25, I think. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You know, we cannot allow our own ideas to dilute what the Scriptures say. And that's a point that we really have to drive home when we're dealing. We have to understand that ourselves, and we have to convey that to others and make them aware and help them to see that. Proverbs 3 5 were explicitly commanded not to lean to our understanding, to our rationale of things. Exactly. Very good. What does the Bible teach regarding those who walk disorderly? Now, the Methodist church, and not just homosexuality, they, def- uh, uh, they definitely minister to them using the term that, that they use. Uh, they would not. Uh, uh, if a person were involved in any other sin, they would not. Uh, they would not. I don't think they have a. Uh, well, I, I better back up. I'm not sure they don't have a, a system of withdrawal. They may very well have that, but they certainly don't have it pertaining to those who are practicing homosexuality. What does the Bible say about well, those who walk disorderly? The Bible is very specific with this. <laughs> okay. And that involves doing what? Not keeping company. Not keeping company. It's uh, do not eat with them in a sense. You know, no social functions with them. Don't walk, uh, withdraw from them. Uh, we have an example of a man in First Corinthians five who was engaged in fornication, and he was put away. Of course, we see a positive impact uh, on his life later on in the next book where he uh, had come back. So the Bible is very clear that we have the responsibility as Christians to take action against those who uh, walk disorderly in such a manner and, and to be continue fellowshipping those who will not repent of that sin is a sin. That is a sin. How would you point out to a person that they're not just simply joining another denomination? And it's not just merely enough to say, well, we're not a denomination. Well, that may be true, but how do you convince them of that? Ephesians 4, 4. One body. Okay. One hand. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. But all things under Christ, we get Him to be the head of the church. We don't have a, any other head over our church than Christ. But if we do, I'd like for them to point out. Okay. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. Okay. One church is This is kind of a part of one of our other questions. When they use church, they use it three different ways. They use it in a local sense like we do. They use it in the universal sense, much like we do. They now the composition of it would be a different idea. But in terms of all the saved, I mean that's really what church means. In the use of a universal sense. It's everybody who's ever been saved. But they have a third way of using it, and that's the Methodist church. You know that we wouldn't recognize that way of using it in a very institutional sense. That is an institution that they have that makes up part of all the saved, and they see that as the Methodist Church institution and the Church Catholic Church and so forth. 
Whereas the Bible, of course, doesn't have that idea at all. And we need to make sure that we have all that. We can show that in the Scriptures that when you become a Christian, you're called out of sin. You become part of God's assembly of everybody who's ever been saved. And that's really when the Greek person heard that word, he thought of an assembly. And it's it's God's, and he, God, I think, uses it in a special sense, God's assembly of the saved. And that's something we need to drive home when we deal with that. I think we've probably covered about as much as we can cover. I think the bell, first bell's rung and the other one will in any second. Real quickly, what about those who uh, really have difficulty accepting the truth because of reactions of family, friends, and and family members, what did Jesus say? And that's a very powerful verse. And it and I know somebody that that made think quite a bit. And, and uh, she kept thinking about that verse and thinking, well, I can't allow my own feelings to cloud what I know I need to do. And when Jesus says that, he, he had a good reason for saying it. Because he knew people... We're going to be put in that situation. And we have to come on down on his side. Uh, I hope this class has helped you. It's helped me to go back over and look at a lot of this. We need to be getting out and teaching people. You know, We don't need to just sit here and wait on somebody to, to walk through the door and start asking questions. We need to be asking people to study the Bible. And I'm talking to me as much as I am to any of you. So... Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed the class. But you know, if we're out sowing the seed, we're doing what we're supposed to do. And there will be some good seed that falls on. I also sowed it when When they hear it, they're responsible. Stay with one verse, Paul.